Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and we hope everyone is staying safe and healthy during this COVID-19 pandemic. This is the third episode in our champion series, talking with analytics types from teams that have won titles in the past year. We've already talked to Ravi Ramaneni of the Seattle Sounders and Jonathan Toskus of the Washington Nationals. This week, we stay in D.C. to chat with Eric Tebow, associate head coach for the reigning WNBA champion Washington Mystics. Eric has been at the Mystics since 2013. His dad, Mike, is the winningest coach in WNBA history. Eric's interviewed for at least a couple of head coaching jobs in the last two off-seasons. Many expect him to get one of those jobs in the near future. In the meantime, Eric has his hands in almost every aspect of the Mystics coaching, and in our conversation, he'll talk about what he does as an associate head coach, the role data and analytics play in the coaching process, how available data has changed in the WNBA over the past decade, communicating with players, using data in drafting and player development, and getting married a week after winning the WNBA finals. Then True Media's DJ Bailey will join me to react and wrap things up. One note that Eric and I recorded this last week, the day before the WNBA officially postponed the start of the season. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with Washington Mystics associate head coach, Eric Tebow. We're joined now on expected value by Eric Tebow, associate head coach for the reigning WNBA champion, Washington Mystics. Eric, welcome to the show. Before we get into the details of what you do and how you use data, I'm curious, just in general, what have these last few weeks been like for you and the team? You're obviously not in season. You're about two weeks from the draft, six weeks from the first scheduled game right now. Uh, you have players that play overseas, though. So what have these last few weeks been like for you and the team? Well, first off, Paul, thanks for having me. Um, mm-hmm. It has, kind of along with the rest of the sports world, been just a like pulling the plug uh, right as we were getting ramped up. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, we had a lot of players overseas. One of our big priorities right off the bat was making sure we could get the American players home that were over there. We had a couple mm-hmm. in places like South Korea and Hungary. And so that took a little maneuvering uh, on a couple cases of just, you know, they had to solve their contract issues and everything like that and, and get home. Did a little self quarantine uh, for a couple of our players. So, now we have a, we have a couple that are based here in DC, and then everybody else is kind of spread out around the country. And then we have a couple that are still overseas that, that live overseas that uh, we're going to have to cross that bridge when it comes to it uh, about getting mm-hmm. them home. So now it's just kind of everybody's everybody's in their own place, and we're all communicating as everybody else is through through video chat and sending film to everybody, and just trying to stay connected and <laughs> in some sort of physical shape whenever we do we whenever we do ramp things up. Yeah, it's weird times we're in. So on a on a happier note, uh, you got married last year right after the Mystics won the WNBA title in October. So just tell me kind of generally, what was that crazy couple of weeks like for you? So looking back, I don't know what, what we were thinking. Uh, <laughs> specifically, I was thinking. So yeah. my, uh, my wife is the athletic trainer for the women's basketball team at Georgetown. So we had a, okay. a small window between the end of our season and the start of her season. So we just decided the best thing to do is to wedge the wedding in thinking, all right, well, you know, if we go all the way, game five of the finals is October 10th and the wedding's on the 19th, that will be okay. Well, that'll be enough yeah. of a cushion. <laughs> and uh, kind of maybe didn't take into account the fact that what what if we lost game five of the finals? Uh, what's that wedding going to be like? So <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, we we got the job done and we had the trophy at the wedding. That was, that was nice and 
got away for a couple of days and then she was back to work. Wow. Crazy. Uh, so you're one of a couple mystics assistant coaches. You're the associate head coach. And I think, you know, we generally know what an assistant coach does, but tell me what kind of areas of focus are you responsible for with the mystics? Sure. Kind of would, you know, as, as is normal for the WNBA, we have a little bit smaller staff, uh, mm-hmm. than like an NBA team would. So we have our hands probably each coach probably has their hands in a, in a few more things. Primarily I work with the guards, you know, I do a good chunk of our advanced scouting. I try to, you know, connect a lot of bridges from our video guys, video, our video staff to the coaching staff or, you know, since, since we're going to get into analytics here, you know, how can I take mm-hmm. info from our analytics uh, people and either, you know, convey it to the rest of the coaching staff or to the team you know, I'm involved in, in college scouting because uh, with the summer season, we're able to do our own scouting for the draft, which is which is nice. Um, so I, I don't know. I have my hands kind of kind of in everything from from on the court to off. Yeah. So let's start kind of big picture from a data perspective. What role do those things, data analytics, what do they play in your regular routine as associate head coach? So I think my mind is a little bit wired that way anyway. You know, I, I, I like Data, I like trying to get as much information as I can. I think I try to put it, I think most good teams do, as one piece of the puzzle. Uh, yep. One, to check what my eyes are seeing. Do I do my you know gut feelings and, and eye test? Do they match up to what the numbers say is actually happening? Um, and I think we've, we've done a pretty good job of trying to incorporate it into every part of our operation from the on-court performance to sports science to draft prep to scouting either confirming what we think or find a different angle. You know, I think we've just tried to make it part of our of our daily life I and mean, not have it be this, you know, this big thing. Well, what do the analytics say? Well, we're just, you know, it's just right. part of part of all, all of our discussions in some form or another. And then so from the advanced scouting part that you talked about, like what are you giving to players? We're obviously not trying to reveal secrets or anything, sure. but just kind of generally speaking, what are you handing to a player or another coach uh, in advance of a game? Most of what it comes down to is right. What are, what are what decisions do we want to make in our game plan? So, so I'll just use an example of like our finals against Connecticut. Sure. Well, you know, yeah. both teams are good offensive teams. You can't take away everything. Um, so we just wanted to get into you know a lot of our discussions would be a, a, around choices. Okay, well, if we if we want to stay home here and here, what does that do to, for example, like uh, they have a player Alyssa Thomas who's an anomaly in our league. She's a power forward who can't shoot outside of five feet and yet is one of the better offensive players in our league because she's a battering mm-hmm. ram and she can draw and kick to three-point shooters. So we had a big discussion, you know, trying to use the numbers to decide, okay, how do we want to play her? Are we comfortable letting her drive, trying to finish over length, or are we want to send more help? Do we want to switch? So we try to use the numbers as best we can to, to, to look at the different options in those areas. Um, and you know what, sometimes there's not that much separation and we got to be able to adjust and, uh, and change on the fly. Um, like when she was a 50% free throw shooter and suddenly shoots 90% in the finals, (laughs) well, we can't, you know, we can't play her quite the same way as we, as we were before. Um, so I don't know, we, I think it's just kind of trying to inform our decisions in a scouting report. And then if, if we think there's something clear, you know, a a tendency from a team that's clear that we want to take away and reinforce, then we'll, you know, we'll reinforce that with our players as well. We all know basketball is, in general, has changed, especially at the pro level over the last decade or so. In part because there's more data, there's advanced data uh, that's available. How has that data, whether it's you know stats or video or tracking or whatever, how has that changed for you in your time with the Mystics? You've been there since 2013. So how has it changed for you in that span? I think the biggest thing is we're getting more data 
readily available online through through the league. I mean, I think the biggest change is the, mm-hmm. the league website. Um, yeah. the league, what the league provides has has you know improved hugely even in the last five years. We're using a lot of the same information, but we're not having to spend hours tracking it by hand. I mean, I remember when I was when I was working for. Uh, my dad's team in Connecticut, I was doing lineup data for our team, literally by hand, mm. you know, sub in, sub out right. <laughs> behind yeah, the bench during games. Yeah. So that's, yeah, exactly. So stuff like that, that's just, you know, a lot quicker. Uh, we can match it up with video a lot better. Even through our video software, we can, we can track certain things analytically, which is, I mean, hugely helpful. Even when you, when you want to go to a player and you can mm-hmm. show the film and go, here's what the numbers say and here's what it looks like. And now we can go get on the court. Uh, and work on it and, and replicate the situation. So it seems like the three-point revolution has arrived or is starting to arrive in the WNBA as well. You know, we see it in the NBA, we see it at the college levels. At the very least, I think teams are far more efficient offensively compared to previous years. So I'm curious, given that you guys set records for threes attempted in a game and made in a game last season, it seems clear that that's intentional. So I guess how has the Mystic strategy kind of changed since you've been there? And what part did the data and analytics play in that? So I would say our strategy maybe hasn't been hugely different other than maybe now we have the personnel to kind of do what we envisioned. The easiest thing for, for us is that we have Elena Deladon and Elena Deladon's a, a forward who can step out and shoot the three. She can post up, which gives us a ton of flexibility. You know, we've always had point guards who could, who could shoot the three, but now we've kind of built a, a roster where up and down the roster people can shoot. Mm. Um, and I think a couple of the, the last couple of championship teams – uh, Seattle with Brianna Stewart, us with Elena, and we have Emma Meesman, another another post player who was 50-40-90 this year, just didn't have enough games to qualify. Right. Um, you know, that's just it, all of a sudden a player like that who can post up and command a double team. Well, you better have people on the floor who can who can shoot. But you know, players are smart. I think uh, I think players as they're coming up now watch the NBA and watch the WNBA, and from a younger age are making sure they incorporate this stuff into their game. Yeah. So it's as much a reaction to the personnel that you have as it is looking at the numbers and saying this might be a better mathematical decision huh yeah i think so probably both you know it's maybe little things with you know a player saying hey that that early mid-range pull up early in the shot clock in transition probably is not our best shot now is that a shot that when there's four on the shot clock and we need to look sure so just a little bit of education in those areas but I mean, we're not like hugely smarter than anybody else. Like, it's not that eleven other teams didn't know Elena Deladon's a great player, right. but having her allows us to play a certain style that maybe maybe teams that have more traditional post players can't play quite the same way. We talk a lot on this show about the importance of communicating data, and so what are your keys? Because it seems like you kind of play almost that translator role that a lot of people we talk to play, where you just to keep it black and white, like you understand the number side and you understand the game and you're kind of responsible for bridging that gap a little bit. So what are the keys for you as you're communicating uh, data to other players or to other members of the staff? I would say with the players specifically, I think anything I can frame or we can frame in the, in the you know, angle of this is a great play. This is a great shot. Here's mm-hmm. what great shots look like for us. Here's why. And that's, you know, we'll bring the numbers in to explain why you know, backing at six inches up behind the line becomes a hugely more valuable shot. But it's I think it's harder when you start telling players the things they can't do. Hey, don't shoot this okay. shot. Don't take, you know. So I, I would say we try to reinforce probably the things we want. And it's tied into when we defensive game plan, here's the things we try to take away. Well, flip it around. Here's the shots we want to get. 
but you know we have a we have a really really smart group of players who understand this stuff pretty pretty instinctively right. and i would say it's more in the off season where we dive into kind of more of the nuance and the, the deeper part of it as far as our staff i mean i think again maybe people don't dive in the numbers quite as much but they understand it pretty pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It comes up more like this time of the year when we're talking about stuff like draft prospects and how much weight do we put want to put in their numbers in college. Maybe there's a difference in their the leagues they played in. But yeah, no, I think just trying to simplify as much as we can, take our take our instincts that we already trust and try to back them up. Yeah. You mentioned the the draft process that's coming up. Uh, what role does data play for you in that? Obviously, there's there's a video element, there's some sort of statistical element. How do you kind of put those two together as you're working on decisions so the numbers i do believe can tell us a lot um, especially in some certain areas you know field goal percentage effective field goal percentage tends to translate pretty pretty mm-hmm. accurately there's certain thing you know certain positions rebounding the ball or whether players turn it over you know versus you know their assist to turnover ratio all stuff like that but you know it's it's probably more like all right let's this player maybe doesn't shoot it quite as well as we'd like but now let's go to the video or we've gone and watched them in person or we watched them practice and we say, okay, do, do we think that can change? Right. Do okay. they project as a better shooter? You know, we have, we have a player on our team, Natasha Cloud, our point guard who coming out of college wasn't really, you know, had just kind of started becoming a three-point shooter. And we just had to go, well, do we like enough other things? Yes. Do we think she can improve as a shooter? Yes. Okay, we feel good. So I, I don't know. I think there that's where we try to, you know, the film the film maybe tells us what the numbers don't and vice versa. You mentioned that developing the guards is one of your uh, roles, and I think you got kind of a reputation for that. So with Natasha Cloud, for example, so that's where you're seeing that, okay, the data may not be what we want, but you see from a, whether it's mechanics or whatever, perspective that you can do something with it so it's kind of so again you're pulling the data and you're pulling your eyes together and using that and that's kind of what goes into the uh, we'll call it the improvement the development part right i mean and and with her and and with several of our other players there's a a physical and a mental component too that we want to make sure we're we're looking at you know we might want to change something mechanically in her shot but we say oh she's got some restrictions here physically um on you know a certain body part or Mm-hmm. her flexibility right. or whatever so you know again the data for us is an important part but it's just kind of one part of a of a bigger picture can we you know channel her focus mentally on a couple of things while we're while we're working on it uh, a big thing for her actually as much as the three-point shooting improved was you know we were able to take a look a couple off seasons ago at you know the frequency that she was able to get to the rim get fouled finish at the basket and we thought that was an area that was hugely under underrepresented for her like she needed to just do it more it didn't even mean better it just meant more um so then you go find the film and you try to find you know a dozen 15 plays and go hey here were the opportunities this is the one you know you settled for this where we you can maybe get one more dribble and get to the rim and get get contact or finish and then you go on the court and work on it so you know there's the data that's what tells us one thing here's what it looks like and here's what we can do about it i want to ask about go back about five years and in 2015, Mystics got a fair amount of press, at least in analytics world, played what kind of was termed an analytics scrimmage against the Lynx, had some unique rules like mid-range shots were turnovers, things like that. I guess maybe kind of how did that come about? What did you take away from that experience? So I believe, it's kind of funny, I had kind of forgotten about it, and we've had a couple people mention it to us recently. Ted Leonsis, our, our owner, uh, who's a very analytically minded guy, I think he was the one that kind of pushed it initially to try it out. We always tend to scrimmage with Minnesota in the preseason and 
uh, Cheryl Reeve, their their coach is kind of of a similar mindset as we are. So we just figured, hey, why why not try it? We like to experiment a little bit in the preseason anyway. A couple of the things I believe we that was one of the first times I think we reset to fourteen on offensive rebound. I believe was mm-hmm. one of the rules, and so that's now actually so. a league rule, as you know. You know, some of it was just reinforcing things we talked about in practice anyway, about you know rim and threes and fouls being worth more than mid range. But it, it was it was to such an extreme where when you couldn't even shoot a mid range shot. You know, it was kind of funny to see how that warped uh, <laughs> the game. Like defensively, you didn't even have to worry about somebody there. Um, so I don't know. It was, it was probably just a good exercise, especially preseason like that, just yeah. to see uh, what it looked like. And I think at that time, scoring where it was, it was, it was pretty high scoring. I think we played a half, right? I don't know. Maybe you have I think the number so. in front. I think we played I think a it half. It was like 48-41, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, Minnesota's always been a good defensive team. So it was kind of just eye-opening, I think, for, for both sets of players to say, like, oh, you can still, even with, like, taking something like mid-range jumpers completely away, you could still score mm-hmm. a lot of points. But, you know, it's, it's funny now to look at it because both teams over the years have had a couple exceptional mid-range shooters. So, yeah, there's still a place for it. Yeah, it's interesting almost thought experiment that you could play out on the court. Are there things like that that you maybe try in, in practice ever just to, to do a similar sort of thing in a, on a much smaller scale? Much like NBA teams have done, we've, we've weighted uh, certain shots as being worth, worth more in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, it was corner threes, although our, our three-point line is the same distance all the way around, so it's not quite as big a factor in our game. Um, right. A lot of times in practice, we'll, we'll do it defensively you know putting a, an extra premium on not giving up shots at the rim or or fouling or or offensive boards so there'll be certain mm-hmm. things that we'll we'll try to wait uh, in terms of the numbers we haven't i don't know if we've taken it quite to the extreme as some teams like the four-point line right. the deep three-point line or anything like that yeah. but we, we've kind of tried to for you know for a while in training camp we use the the nba line as our three-point line just to emphasize spacing and, and the value mm-hmm. of spacing on our game Let's talk about your path to where you are now. I think at the service level, you know, you come from a basketball family. It looks like it's kind of that classic uh, story, just raised in the game and continued. But I believe you went to University of Missouri to study journalism. And again, they have a great, one of the best journalism programs in the country. So what? tell me about that path and then kind of what pushed you back into coaching and basketball. Sure. Yeah, I went with the, <laughs> I thought I was going to be the next great sports writer or sports broadcaster. Uh-huh. Um, and after about a year or so, a year and a half, I just kind of realized I wasn't, wasn't made to be a journalist. I like, I like the creative part of it, but you know, being a good journalism school, I was in classes with some people who are really gung ho journalists and I was like, okay, that's not, that's not what I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at the time I had, I was a practice player for the, for the women's team at, uh, Mizzou mm-hmm. and that eventually turned into a grad assistant job there, which is kind of how I got my, my start alongside I was working summers for for the Connecticut Sun um, so I was still kind of scratching that itch even though I didn't know you know coaching was where I was headed but and I never really fully kicked it away either so it was, it was always kind of lingering there. Okay. Where did along that route as you kind of moved up the coaching ranks and stuff where do you remember data or analytics kind of becoming a thing that started to get incorporated into coaching and game planning? I mean, I was a big fan of those those seven seconds or less Phoenix Suns teams. Yeah. Um, that's probably what really opened my eyes to kind of some of the math behind it. I mean, I think Mike D'Antoni is just a, a genius in terms of, you know, who else is willing to just put themselves out right. on, a, on a ledge like that. But, you know, my dad worked for, for Paul Westhead, um, who played a certain mm-hmm. way. And 
my dad coached with those Bucks teams, the 01 Bucks, who a lot of people remember, which was a, a floor spacing and shooting team, which it's kind of funny to think of them as a shooting team. You compare them to, to teams now, and they're not even, they don't take any threes compared to modern right. teams. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so I don't know. I think those Phoenix Suns teams kind of put me onto it. Uh, it's probably about the same time I was starting to, to, to chart some stuff during games. So I don't know. I just uh, gradually grew from there. So if someone, uh, we like to talk career advice here. If someone's looking, someone wants to get into basketball coaching and how would you recommend they kind of look to the data side? Like how do they get into basketball analytics or look how to incorporate that sort of data into their coaching? What do you point them to or what do you recommend there? I mean, I think there's a, I don't know if I'm the most qualified to answer that, but I think there's a, mm-hmm. there's a couple different paths. Like either you're really technically proficient being able to, to program and code and actually get into that side of it. If you're more interested on the on the coaching side, you know, there's a ton. Like we have a guy on our staff who does a lot on the video side and has really learned how to incorporate the analytics side of things into his video work. But I think, you know, just the way that professional leagues are going where the top down decision makers are analytics people to be afraid of the numbers or to to not want to deal with it is probably not a good career path. Like even if you're just right. thinking of yourself as a basketball person, um, you know, you got to be able to speak the language of both. You got to be able to speak the, the analytics language and you got to be able to speak the coaching and, and player language. I think if, if you can understand both sides of it and figure out how to bridge the gap between the two, that gives you a really good chance to be successful. Yeah. Speaking the language, something that a lot of people will bring up and on the show and just other conversations as well. Uh, so we wrap things up with what we call our playing favorites segment. We're going to run through a number of favorites to get your thoughts on those. So we'll start with what is your favorite number and why? So being that you're also a soccer guy, you'll appreciate. Uh, I'll go mm-hmm. with 14 because I loved Xabi Alonso when he played for ah. Liverpool. Favorite player for you as a kid? This can be any sport. Just kind of like like that one you know poster on the wall in theory that you might have had. I'm the right age for Michael Jordan. There's just no way yeah. no way around. I'm as excited as everybody else for this uh, this series that's coming out on ESPN. So I'll say Jordan, and then because my dad was coaching the Omaha Racers, I'll uh-huh. go Tim Legler. Wow, uh, was my was my home my hometown hero. Yeah, so you enjoyed seeing him just continue to do well and, and make his name on ESPN and such. Very much so. All right. Favorite game that you have been to? I'm going to throw out like last season for the Mystics. Just kind of favorite game you've been to. I'm thinking more of as a fan, just that favorite game experience you've had. Sure. So when my sister, uh, my sister coaches at the University of Minnesota, uh, mm-hmm. when she was an assistant for the Mississippi State women's team, they knocked off UConn in the Final Four, oh. a pretty famous game. So that was, yeah. you know, at that game as a fan, that's probably the most into a game I've ever been. And that was just unbelievable. So I'll say that. Yeah. Funny story. I was working the early sports center the next day and had gone to sleep before the game ended. So I woke up at, you know, whatever, three in the morning and I get to work and like our whole rundown from the night before had been blown up because of that game. So it was was Uh, a good thing. It's a fun thing to talk about, but it was a little bit crazy. You mentioned the Liverpool connection. Uh, Looks like that's your favorite soccer team. What's the story behind that? No real rhyme or reason to it. Just uh, when I was when I was in school, we started. I don't know. I just all of a sudden I, I'd always like soccer a little bit, and uh, get home from class, and this thing I'd never heard of before called the Champions League was on <laughs> ESPN two at the time. Yep. Uh, in the afternoon, kind of right when I was getting home from class, so just started kind of watching some games, and I actually tuned in. I think to watch Barcelona, and they were playing at this place called Anfield that I didn't know anything about, and I just got I got hooked on the Liverpool crowd and uh, the atmosphere there. And so I don't know. It's been close to fifteen years now. Yeah, it's infectious for sure. And finally, uh, give me a favorite story from the aftermath of winning a title. Favorite thing or experience you got to do? Something along those lines. Yeah, you mean other than other than the wedding? <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. We'll say unrelated to the wedding, but related to winning a title. What was your favorite kind of 
aftermath story. I don't know. It was just a, we had a great time after the game, just getting out, found a restaurant for us that night just to go and mm-hmm. have our big, you know, organization wide party. And yeah, it was a long night. It was a, it was a, a little bit of a rough oh, yeah. morning the next morning. <laughs> um, and probably for the first time in, uh, in seven years here, I think, uh, I was late for our meeting the next day cause I didn't, I didn't see the notification. So, uh, you know, if you're going to be late, might as well be late yeah. the day after winning the championship. I don't know if anybody can really hold it against me there. So yeah, rolled in, had a little rally the next day at the facility and, uh, rallied myself, so to speak. Yeah, I'd say that that's a reasonable excuse and, and a good story to end with. So Eric Tebow, associate head coach for the reigning WNBA champion, Washington Mystics. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Washington Mystics associate head coach Eric Tebow for joining us on Expected Value as part of our champion series. You can follow him on Twitter at ET underscore hoops. I'm joined now by True Media's analytics manager, DJ Bailey, our resident basketball expert. DJ, what did you take away from the conversation with Eric? We touched on a lot of kind of interesting things, but what really stood out to me was his description of uh, kind of the role of being the bridge between analytics and kind of coaching and uh, how analytics is just kind of one piece of the puzzle and how do you kind of like incorporate it into kind of like all elements of the game. And he, he, he talked, he mm-hmm. talked about how the numbers would tell him one thing and then he'd go to the video and see if the eye test really kind of like aligned what the analytics were telling him. And mm-hmm. I think that's, something that kind of goes, I don't want to say unnoticed, but <clears throat> kind of falls by the wayside sometimes is that you kind of have to align those two to really kind of get an answer or a conclusion that um, you were kind of seeking. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was impressed by how, and I know this is more and more the norm now, but I was impressed by how tightly integrated the analytics were in the process. I mean, part of that I think is, as he said, simply because WNBA teams have smaller staffs than, say, NBA or Major League Baseball teams. But part of it, I think, is simply because it works. And like you're saying, they go to the numbers, they go to the video, you go back and forth, you figure out what, not a right and wrong thing, but just how it all fit matches up together. And it wouldn't be that tightly integrated if it wasn't working. And he picked out so many different aspects of coaching that they use numbers and incorporate everything, whether it's, you know, scouting, whether it's self-scouting, advanced scouting, drafting, all these different ways that he used analytics, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, he talked about how during like the draft process, there's some stats they value uh, more than others. Um, he touched on uh, kind of like field goal percentage and effective field goal percentage typically translate pretty well from college to the pros. Mm-hmm. And uh, But they also look at some things like if a player shot a little better their senior year than their junior year and they go to the video or they go to a, kind of like kind of a workout and they kind of look at the player's mechanics and they kind of combine just how we were just talking about it like with video and analytics they combine what they're seeing with the analytics to kind of come to an assessment of that player can they improve and there was also another instance with a guard because i know he mentioned talking about working with the guards a lot how a player they wanted her to get to the rim more instead of just a higher you know percentage at the rim they just wanted her to get to the rim more and i think uh it's these things that kind of like scouting can kind of help um guide yeah yeah reinforcing positively he mentioned i thought was a really good thing like hey just do this more uh continue to do more of this let's try this this is something you want to do uh that seems to resonate he said with players more. And I liked how his, he had that example of using the numbers to help figure out how to def, 
the best way to defend someone like uh, Alyssa Thomas in the post. Uh, you know, it's not that they're going to do exactly what these numbers say, but you know, they're trying to re- reason through their options. Like, okay, we could defend her this way or this way. And th- let's take a look at what the numbers say. They say, okay, you know, they do this many points per possession when they get it into her in the post, or if she has to go this way or that way or whatever it might be. It's all part of just finding all that information and using all of it, whether it's video, whether it's eye test, whether it's analytics. And it seems so obvious, you know, the way he says it, and it's so easy. And I think that's a sign that they're doing things well, that it just seems natural and easy to do and easy to use all these different things and combine them toward one goal. Yeah, just to build off that, I mean, you asked them how long they've been kind of like focusing on the three-point shot. And he Mm -hmm. said, really, it was a matter of personnel. And yeah, they, they kind of shifted to more emphasizing the three-point shot when they got post players who could be effective from that range. Right. They kind of transformed their whole offense. They didn't want to force that onto the personnel they didn't have. And I think that's important and across all sports is to kind of you have to balance personnel with what you want to do based on what the analytics are telling you. Yeah, for sure. All right, that'll wrap things up for this episode of Expected Value. Thanks again to Eric Tebow of the Washington Mystics for joining us on the show as part of our champion series. If you want more basketball talk, check out our archives for a conversation with Spencer Anderson, the Indiana Pacers Director of Basketball Analytics. Please continue to spread the word about the show however you can, mostly on social media and such right now. You can follow us on Twitter at TrueMediaSports or email us expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com with questions, comments, or guest suggestions. On behalf of DJ Bailey and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that takes you inside the sports analytics world. We'll be right back.